Hello, I'm Dr. Miriam Hanna, and this is The Allergist, a show that separates myth from medicine, deciphering allergies and understanding the immune system. Ladders, ladders everywhere. They've started a global sensation. It's not like the Taylor Swift global sensation, but we've definitely started to stir things up with these ladders. Should we incorporate them, get them started from the time of referral? And if it's really all just so easy, why have we not eradicated all milk and egg allergy by now? Here to answer these fascinating questions and more is a dear colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Douglas Mack. Dr. Mack is a pediatric allergy, asthma, and immunology specialist and an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Pediatrics at McMaster. He's the treasurer of the CSACI and co-author of guidelines on the prevention of allergy, epinephrine use, anaphylaxis, oral immunotherapy, and speaks internationally about the treatment of food allergy and, you guessed it, food ladders. Dr. Mack, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode and welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking about this subject. Okay, so big topic. Let's start with the overarching question. Are there different phenotypes to our milk and egg allergic children? I I think, to be honest with you, this is probably the most fundamental question that we can ask. And I think the vast majority of my patients who have milk or egg allergy are going to outgrow this. And I think of these as a naturally spontaneously resolving phenotype that for the most part, no matter what I do as an allergist or the parents or whatever, these kids are going to outgrow this. And I think this is somewhat predetermined. I, I think this is something that we look even from a genetic perspective. Many of these kids who have a very specific type of mutation, there was an article published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. And they found that if patients had a significant mutation in a gene called filaggrin, that they were more likely to have persisting milk or egg allergy. And I think this is what we see. Even some of the very early studies that was just published at around a year of age, these patients in Ireland that used a, a ladder, the ones that were harder to really get through that, or they couldn't progress through that, even at a year of age, tended to have a higher IgE level than those that that were more likely to be successful on these letters. So yes, I think that there are phenotypes. The phenotype that I'm the most concerned about is the phenotype that is unlikely to outgrow this. And I think this is where we need to be sensitive and this is where we actually can run into trouble when we're looking at treatments. So can we predict the sensitive ones? Are we at a point where we can say flagrant mutations, so maybe our bad atopic dermatitis patients or like higher than X IgE level, maybe those are the kids that are going to get into trouble with this ladder? Are we at a point where you, you can confidently say we can pick out these kids early? It's a great question. And I think we can have a gestalt about this. And I think you and I have been in practice long enough to predict some of this. But as you were saying earlier, many times we just get completely surprised. We have children who there's no, by no means should they be able to tolerate that product, but they do it anyways. Or the kids who you just are sure are going to sail through this and they and they are unable to do so. So I think, yes, we can look at these people and try to predict this. 
and we can use our skin testing, our blood work. We can look at their degree of eczema. We can look at their age, other allergies as well. And I think we can start to make uh, generalizations as to where these kids are going to go. But we're not always right, are we? And I think this is one of the challenges that, that we face. So I think we do our best, but it's very difficult for us to look forward five or 10 years and say, what's going to be happening with this kid? I'm not even convinced that components are have been terribly helpful in this regard. And there was a recent study that looked at the entry food challenges for patients that were going into a phase two study for a baked milk OIT. And l- there was absolutely no way to predict whether skin prick testing, uh, serum IgE level, component levels, none of these were predictive of whether or not these patients were going to outgrow it. I mean, there may have been trends, and I think you and I can estimate that, but there's no great way of predicting this, unfortunately. I, I've been in office with you long enough that I've caught on to the, mm. you know, it's no better than the flip of a coin sometimes. Let's just predict it when we walk mm. in the door. It's either going to go mm. well or not well that day. That's right. So Dr. Mack, at some point in our practice and in our careers, we've mm. seen this shift from the word ladders being used for non-IgE mediated food allergy to today when we refer to ladders as getting used for IgE mediated food allergy. Can you walk me through when did this shift happen? Right. Like when did this switch happen and trend happen in allergy care? Yeah. Uh, I Listen, I'm going to do the first thing I'm going to say is I think Families have been using ladders for decades, right? And I think this is important for us to understand. What we've done is put a bit of a framework to what's, what we have witnessed happening. I think back in 2008, Sinai in New York, they published a number of articles looking at how many patients with milk or egg allergy were tolerant of bait forms. But that was based on the observation that families were making that their kid could eat muffins and their kid could eat cake. It wasn't that this was discovered by Sinai. The parents already knew this. And I think ladders have been similarly used by parents. And you've seen this in your practice as well, that without even, they come back to us like, well, he's already eating pancakes or he's had some cheese and he's been fine. And this is something our parents are doing without us even doing it. What a ladder does is put some structure to that. And these were my colleague, Karina Venter and others. She's really been behind a lot of this. And I think published this in 2013 for non-IgE mediated food allergy. But not long after that, in 2014 and 2015, a number of studies, or never guidelines at least, and parameters suggested that these could be used in patients who have IgE-mediated food allergy, but primarily for those that were relatively lower risk. So this has really moved its way along to the point where now a number of different countries have these. There's been a number of studies as to how we can use these in different populations. But this has really been a progressive comfort level with this. And, and I think this is something that we, once again, we've been seeing really become structured over the past uh, 10 years or so. So structured and it's a ladder. Is this a form of OIT? Because that's it, ultimately the question is, are you doing right. like oral immunotherapy light with these guys that are going to resolve? Or are you pushing the stubborn ones over the line into reaction? Or what do you, what how would you classify these ladders then? Right. I, I think it really d- depends on how you defined OIT. Okay. And, and so we published an article where we called these approaches dietary advancement therapies and that we tried to separate it. And there was overlap. Myself and Catherine Agnostu and Matt Greenhut, we looked at the groups that were lower risk and they were able to tolerate baked products. They were able to tolerate ladders. But if you were of a particular phenotype or you were higher risk, 
are you doing OIT? And the way I define OIT is it's a therapy that is used primarily in patients that are unlikely to outgrow the food allergy that they have. And that doesn't mean that we don't treat patients who are going to outgrow them. But I think, strictly speaking, OIT is when a patient is very unlikely to outgrow them. And I think this is where the challenge uh, arises. Am I doing OIT? Am I not? It depends. And, and, I, and I think if we are looking at a patient who strictly is unlikely to outgrow, for example, their milk allergy, there's been a number of studies looking at this, Israeli studies that, that, that have looked at this, where they showed an extraordinarily high rate of epinephrine use and reactions using baked products as a form of strict OIT in the patients that are unlikely to outgrow it. A recent phase two study, once again out of New York, showed very similar rates of reactions to standard OIT. In fact, the epinephrine use was about 20% in these patients with very, very similar cofactor. I mean, this is very similar to our kind of higher risk OITs. Exercise, menstruation, illness were the most common cofactors. And what was interesting about strict OIT in these patients with strict baked milk OIT that 50% of these epinephrine-treated reactions were two to three hours after the dose. And I think this is, I think, one of the challenges that we face that, yes, I am probably doing some kind of OIT, in, especially in my patients who are higher risk and unlikely to grow it. But what am I doing in those patients that are not? And I think it's tempting to think of this as a way of hastening this along. But I often wonder if we're patting ourselves on the back for providing structure to a naturally occurring process. And I think this is something that I, I wrestle with on a regular basis. And there maybe there's a tipping point where I can redirect these kids at a very early age. And some of that data coming out of Ireland is suggestive to some degree of that, but I don't think we know the answer. And, and so mm. that's how I'm going to answer this. I, I think realistically, it it is clearly in some patients a form of OIT, but I think in my high risk patients, it is actually a, quite a high risk form of OIT. So if we're not very good at predicting, should right. we be running all these guys as baked oral challenges in the office or can we start them at home? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, you know, I've done this like four times today and I really think it just depends on the patient. And when I look at a patient to, to try to figure out, are they going to be amenable to a ladder or baked egg ingestion or baked milk ingestion. Some would say, just do it right off the bat at six months of age, seven months age. And yes, there is data to support doing that at a very young age that these kids may do actually really very well. And I think that is, and it's relatively safe for those patients. But let's just say, let's forget about those kids that are under a year and, and I think for a second, because the majority of our kids that we're seeing are older than that. And, and, I, and I think, and may, families may not be comfortable and we're working through other issues. When I look at a kid, I look at what are my favorable characteristics? And I typically will say my favorable characteristics are a younger age, obviously non-IgE-mediated allergy. If they've had prior mild or non-anaphylactic reactions, that's a great kid. Non-asthmatic or mild controlled or treated asthma, like regularly treated asthma, something we need to think about. Small or declining skin prick testing or blood work. I'd like to see that. If that's you know that case... I feel more comfortable with those kids. High previously reaction threshold, if they can drink a half a cup of milk and and they're fine, chances are they're going to be fine with most of my baked products. But I think the the kids that I get worried about, and, and so those kids, younger kids, those other kids, I may recommend that they may try to progress at home. And I think that's, I maybe they'll do the first challenge in my office possibly. 
But those kids, I may say, you can start to gently move your kid along uh, through that. And, and there's caveats to that. But the kids that are unfavorable and the kids that I'm always going to be doing most of my at least introduction of baked food in, in the office are going to be my older kids, right? I think these are the kids that, that scare me the most. My older kids, and I don't have a defined cutoff, I'm going to be honest with you, four to five, I get a little bit skitterish around four to five, suggesting that they do this at home. Eight or nine, once again, I get much more concerned. And, and I think if they have persisting allergy, they've had prior severe or anaphylactic reactions, they're asthmatic, which a lot of these older kids are, larger escalating skin testing. The, these are the kids that I get much more concerned about. And certainly if they can't tolerate big products in my office or can tolerate only a small amount of it, I'm going to be extremely cautious about recommending that these guys move forward. I think this is where we've run into trouble. And I'm going to be honest with you. I think for years we thought that these were very safe because guess what? We were doing them. And for the vast majority of these kids, they were safe because most of these kids outgrow it. Once again, I'm not worried about those low-risk kids. I'm the most worried about those kids that when we do this, they're high risk and they have some instability, whether it's uncontrolled asthma, whether it's intercurrent illness or whatever. And unfortunately, these are the kids that we've had uh, some bad outcomes with. And I think these are the kids that I think has a bit of a wake-up call for us that yes, these are reasonable, but we have to start thinking, stop thinking of this as a one procedure across the entire population. We have to think of this as separate procedures, depending on the population and the phenotype that we're treating. And I think that to me is how I look at every single kid when I'm in my office. And there's, there's the clearly cut ones on either side. It's the kids in the middle that I think are, are a bit more challenging, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Listen, I think you've mentioned skin testing, blood work, genetics, mm, past history, mm, cofactors sure. of asthma. What you haven't said to me yet is what is the utility mm. of fresh food skin testing? Now, we grew up in a region yeah. where fresh food skin testing, i.e. a slurry of the baked product, would be used as skin prick test on the day of challenge. Is there any utility to that? What is the predictive value of that? Right. Here's the thing I'm going to say to you. If walking into my office, a patient has a 75 to 80% probability of being able to tolerate baked products, my test <laughs> to be valuable has to be better than that, right? And I think that this is what's important. And I think what we've not demonstrated is that any of these approaches are really any better at predicting this. In fact, some of them are, are much worse. Our fresh food skin testing, and I'm going to just put this out there for when it comes to just about any food. And so, you know, we don't do any fresh food skin testing at all for peanuts or whatever because they have not been validated. And we know we, we put food on a skin, we may well get a positive skin test, but we have no idea how to interpret that. And I think that's really important. And I think the same thing applies for the baked slurries. Now, the one thing I will say in their defense is if it's negative, we feel relatively confident that these kids are gonna pass. But if it's positive, it's anyone's guess as to whether or not these are useful. And I think, so I, we, I don't do them. I think that in the end, they talk as out of food challenges more than, or progressions more than encourage us to, to consider this in a patient who coming into my office already has a high probability of passing this. So I'll tell you right off the bat, and you, this isn't just for baked. Uh, I think we really have to be very critical of the fact that we have not validated fresh food skin testing. And, and I think, unfortunately, this is something that is still happening. And we gave this up, you know, uh, about a decade ago. Loud and proud. We gave yeah. up fresh <laughs> food skin testing. Absolutely. There's no yep. validation to that. No, okay. no validation. So now a harder question. 
counseling. Sure. What is the degree mm. of counseling that these patients require for a baked milk or egg challenge or for introduction? It's a great question. And I think it does depend on the patient that I'm working with, to be 100% honest with you. I think, look, at if I'm thinking of this as a formal form of OIT in a patient who is probably not going to outgrow this, quite honestly, A, I'm not going to do this. I'm not, I'm not going to do baked milk or egg OIT in a patient that I'm thinking they're outgrowing. But if, patient, if people are doing this, they really need to treat this like OIT and provide that degree of counseling. The shared decision-making beyond behind this, I think, is critical. I think there there was a nice article that came out, and, and I did like it. I, it came out about, uh, about a year ago, um, and what it did is it gave warning signs. It gave a little bit of a a guide as to what when people should be concerned. And it was a Canadian article that looked at this. And, and I think what they did is they just said, you know, parents, here are, are your things to watch out for. Things like asthma, things like infection, things like recurrent mild reactions, a severe reaction, especially those that are having um, epinephrine. And I did this because what it did was provide a bit more structure to, to just, hey, off you go. And I think that was uh, an important part of counseling. Now, whether or not we provide a written handout of exactly how these patients should progress, I generally will uh, either type that out or I may use a pre-made type of a ladder depending on the patient, depending on the parents. But I generally will provide some degree of guidance as to what foods to try next or what foods that I might want them to try in the next four to six months or a year. I may not tell them, go walk your way all the way through it, but I will walk them through how to do that. And once again, it does depend on the patient and the age they're doing. So, but I think discussing that, making sure they tell us if their child has been given asthma medications, puffers, if they're having asthma symptoms. Once again, if we look at all of the dietary advancement therapies for milk and egg, and we published this uh, last year, if we look at all of them that are near fatal or fatal reactions, every single one of those patients was asthmatic. Every single one. And the majority of them were not controlled partially controlled, untreated, or in the midst of an exacerbation. And that's where we end up with these tragic results. A part, a big, And every single one of them has been asthmatic. So, you know, to me, and we can talk about how quickly to escalate these kids, but if there's one modifiable factor that we have, that we know about, it's ensuring that these patients have perfectly controlled asthma. And if they develop asthma while they're on that one year of coming in to see us or six months before they come in to see us, if they develop asthma or asthma symptoms, we have to have a hard look at their control before we recommend that they pro progress on this ladder. I'm going to flip the page on you for a second, and we're going to mm, go to sure, our please. potentially lower risk kids, infants. Yeah. So think six months, yeah. four to six months when they're first getting query diagnosed and sent to you from primary care. You've mentioned it already. Yeah. Across the pond, there's this kind of notion of, should we just be introducing baked milk, baked egg, getting them started on the ladder with just suspected allergy while awaiting to be seen by an allergist? A lot of us mm. have wait lists that are many months in duration, and perhaps that delay puts them in that higher risk category that we are mentioning, if this is any form of immunotherapy, if right. this is better off being started younger. Should we be implementing that in Canada? Are we at a time point where we can do this broadly? Well, here's what I would say to you on that. I don't think we have the data. Uh, I think that what the Irish groups have said, and I really do 
I really do like what they're doing. They're really pushing it. But I just, I don't think we know yet what the outcomes for these patients are. And if we are actually changing the face of these kids' allergy, we might be. I think it is distinctly possible, once again. But we don't have high quality, and and we're doing a review, a systematic review of this in meta-analysis currently. And what is striking to me is that most of the data that is being published, even today, is observational. It's observational. It's experiential. It's what have you done? What worked? And these are critical articles. These are critical studies. But what we really need, and this was Systematic Review in 2017, said the same thing. We need good randomized control data. We've done lots of things in the field of allergy that have, with the absolute best intentions, for example, delaying introduction of food, by the way, with the best intention. And what we realized is that that it wasn't, it was actually harmful. And I'm not saying this is harmful, but I think before we can draw firm conclusions, we need to have good quality data and we need to have randomized control trials that, that suggest this. So I have a hard time suggesting that primary care can do this. I don't, I, I think, I think they probably can in our very low risk population. And regardless, my parents are doing this as already, right? So you, you know that many of our patients, their families have already doing this without even knowing. They may even be halfway down that ladder before they even come to see me. That happens all the time. They come in. Well, I'm already eating baked. I'm like, great, don't stop it. Okay, do not stop that. Keep it going. But I just don't know that we know really what we're going to be doing with these kids and, and what is the safest way of managing them. So I, that, that's how I'm going to answer that. I think I think it does depend on the training. It does depend on the region. And it does depend on on the age of the population. I don't have a problem with it. They certainly suggested that it was is reasonably safe. But I think we have to have caveats. And they have to know when to stop pushing if these kids are having issues. Because once again, some of that data that was just published, it it, it worked in 87% of the kids. Those other out of Ireland, that 10%, even at a year of age, they were already different. And and I think that's one of our challenges. They were already distinctly different at that age. And I think that's something that's sobering from my perspective. When that division occurs, I, I don't know. I don't think anyone does. Excellent. Final comments about sobering times that we're in and changing Mm. times that we're in and likely to change over the next decade as well. All right. Time to wrap up and ask today's allergist, Dr. Douglas Mack, for his top three key messages to impart to patients and physicians on today's topic, food ladders. Dr. Mack, over to you. Listen, I think there's three main things. The first is that these are not for every patient. Uh, And I think that's one. This is not for every patient. Number two, I think it's not without risk. And I think that patients have to be responsive and report their reactions to physicians. But we need to understand who is lower and who is higher risk. And I think we have to, in our minds, start to separate those because I believe these are separate procedures depending on the risk group that we're looking at. The final thing is, it is unclear whether it changes the course of this disease. It is. And I think this is, I think that a lot of us with best intentions are hopeful that this will help these kids to outgrow this faster. And maybe it doesn't. But to, for us to be clear on this, we need higher quality data. And I think this is what our field is lacking. We need to understand what is the mechanism, how this works, and whether or not in good controlled data, whether or not this changes the course for all of these phenotypes, not just the kids that are already halfway outgrown it. That's perfect. Thank you, Dr. Mack, for joining us on today's episode of The Allergist. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. 
This podcast is produced by the Canadian Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. The Allergist is produced for CSACI by Podcraft Productions. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Canadian Society. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. Please visit www.csaci.ca for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. The Find an Allergist app on the website is a useful tool to locate an allergist in your area. If you like the show, please give a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you download your podcasts and share it with your networks with the best of intentions, but the highest quality evidence. Thank you for listening. Sincerely, The Allergist.